Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. So last week, what did we do? What did we do last week? Um, I don't know. I wasn't here. Chapter 21, that's what it was. The triumphal entry, or so-called triumphal entry. Uh, we looked at some of the uh, historical events around that. Uh, we went, to, went through some things in the prophets. We looked at the reason why Yeshua is ultimately going to be crucified. is because he goes into the temple, halts the whole show for a few minutes, starts teaching, pronounces some judgment, and they're like, we can't have any more of this guy. And uh, that's kind of where we left off. Oh, and he tells some pretty scathing parables, um, and they seem to understand just fine. <laughs> um, so yes, so now we're picking up in chapter 23, which is a hard chapter. It is. Um, not because the material is difficult, um, but because this is the landing zone for uh, New Testament anti-Semitism. <laughs> So uh, let's go ahead and, and jump right in and talk about this. So Matthew 23, the seven woes. Oh. They are woes, too. Uh, all right. So I'm just going to read a bit, and then I'm going to stop and give you guys a few thoughts, because I have a lot that I want to try to get through. So this is going to be quick. If you thought that it's been crazy before, oh, just get ready, because <laughs> today's the day. All right, chapter 23. Then Yeshua said to the crowds and to his disciples, the experts in the Torah and the Pharisees, that's the scribes, by the way, experts in the Torah and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, pay attention to what they tell you and do it. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Okay, this is, he's been saying this for 23 chapters. Okay, we shouldn't be surprised at this point. <laughs> He's saying that they are doing things that uh, they're, they're being actors, they're being hypocrites, which is what he's going to go on to keep saying. So look here. They tie up heavy loads, hard to carry, but put, and, put, and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to even lift a finger to move them. This is often used as a, oh, traditions are terrible. See? No. Let's look at the broader context of what's going on here. What, what's the deal? They're putting the heavy, the heavy burdens, but then what are they not doing? They're not, they're not moving even a finger to lift it for anyone. So they're happy to put the burdens. They're happy to be Mr. Smart Rabbi, but they're not helpful teachers. They're not living the lifestyle with the people. Right. It's a rebuke of leadership, yet again. Right. And, and the... Putting a heavy burden on someone could be just as simple. It's not, it doesn't even have anything to do with tradition at all. I don't understand. I mean, this is from a scriptural standpoint. Putting a heavy burden on someone could be going over to your neighbor's house or to someone in your family who you know, is, a good, is a good Christian believer, whatever, and completely lambasting them about not keeping the Sabbath. They're not ready. Is that right? <laughs> is the Sabbath a good thing? Is it a mitzvah? Yes. Should we be doing it? Yes. 
It's a, you know, it's, it's about getting into an argument in a restaurant with, with somebody over how they're eating as a Christian. That's putting a burden on them because it's not where they are. They are not ready. And while it is good, it is also, the word of God is glory, which it's kavod, it means heavy. It's, it's heavy if, it's, if someone's not ready for it, it's heavy. And that's something as a teacher, you should know. Not you. I'm saying as a teacher, you should know. You should have discernment. You should be praying about who you're talking to. And, and so instead of getting in there and helping people lift their load, Yeshua is saying, no, you're, you're trying to put all this stuff. People are not in that world. They're not on that level. They're not ready for all this. People are trying to live every day, right? They're trying to survive. Your neighbors, family, they're trying to survive, do they want a big expository teaching? Do they want a 17-page Facebook post about how pork is bad and you're going to go to hell if you eat it? They're, they're not going to read it anyway. Yeah, they're not going to read it. They're not going to read it. If your Facebook post is not short enough to be in all caps, people are not going to read it. Like, sorry. Uh, but with that, they don't need that. They need a helping hand. They need someone to actually tikkun, to help them repair. And, and what we have to be on guard for, and we'll see it, this is the context of the passage. What we have to be on guard for is to not, uh, a lot of times whenever we first get into this and we're, we're rebuking people for eating unclean and for not keeping the Sabbath and things like that, it's because we want to be right. And we want to be the one with the knowledge. As he says in chapter 23, you love to be called rabbi and get all the good seats and be all chummy with everybody in the city. You know, but uh, that, that's not what it's about. We have to be on guard to not be that that person. It's not about being right. It's about, see, a lot of times we, we want to tell people what they're doing wrong. And uh, a lot of times we're not even, we don't even have a full grasp on how to live it ourselves. Very true. Very true. You know, if you're going to tell it to them, be ready to live it with them. Right. That's the key. Right. Right. Very All right. Good. So verse and five, let me just say, and by, by default, if you're not willing to live it and show them what it looks like, keep your mouth shut. Because you'll cause more confusion if you don't know, if you don't know that, because if you try to be an expert on, on something to someone, they're going to ask you a question you've never considered. Just wait for it. <laughs> you ever try explaining something to your children? And you think, oh, I got it. I got this. Step aside, honey. I got this. And then all of a sudden they hit you with a question. You're like, in all my years, I never thought about it that way. So by, by implication, it, it's about humility, right? And, and it's about not saying anything. Because you don't want to cause confusion in that person. Again, this is all about help and repair. I'm sorry, so go ahead. No, no, it's okay. That's good. So they do all their deeds to be seen by people. Again, 23 chapters long now. <laughs> could, could he hammer it home anymore? To be seen by people, for they make their phylacteries, their tefillin wide. And they make their tassels, their tzitzit, long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and elaborate greetings in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no one father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. That's the whole point of that little, that little episode there. A lot of people get really bent out of shape about the whole rabbi, teacher, father thing. The point is that the greatest among you has to be the servant. So if you're worried about a title and being looked at as some great, amazing rabbi or teacher, then you, 
you don't deserve the title. That's the point. Not that you can't be those things. Right. And not that you can't have the title. But if your kavanah, if your intention is to do these things for the title, that's where the issue comes in. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. He said that before in this gospel. Okay, so here we go. We're going to get to the woes. So I've already sort of led into this a bit, and um, by saying, you know, these things that he's getting on to them for, most of us have been guilty of. So I'm going to have you guys do something with me as we read. Every time that it says experts in the law and Pharisees, put your name. I did this a couple weeks ago, and it literally wrecked me. I wept. Seriously. Whenever I, this is the reason why I've been harping so much on make yourself the bad guy in the story, and Yeshua will talk to you, and, and I'll, I'll show you. Look, try to do it with me. But woe to you, Kyle, hypocrite. You keep locking people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you neither enter nor permit those trying to go in. That'll make you think about your life and what, and what you're doing and who you're keeping out, who you're shutting the door of the kingdom of heaven. You're shutting the door in their face. That's the sense here. Woe to you, Kyle. You cross land and sea to make one convert, and when you get one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Yeah, but we want to go talk Torah in the, in the streets and in the city. Okay, you get the point. All right. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. Blind fools. Same thing. Look, what's he, what are we getting at here? Look, this is so good. He's in Jerusalem now. It's, it, he's as bold as he's going to get at this point. And everything that he's been saying for 23 chapters... It's coming out here, but in full force. What it, every time he debated with Pharisees, he was always vying for interpretation, right? For, the, for who has the best interpretation and, and for um, uh, prioritization of commandments, right? Look, that's exactly what he's, he's doing that here. Blind, blind fools, which is greater? The gold of the temple? Uh, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? Sorry, I can't read today. And whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by the oath. You are blind. He's still talking to you. Your name should still be here. You are blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Um, name it and claim it movement. Okay, moving on. <laughs> and whoever swears by the temple swears by it, and the one who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and the one who sits on it. Woe to you, Kyle. You give, you give a tenth of mill and dill and cumin, yet you neglect what is more important in the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have done these things without neglecting the others. Blind God, you strain out a gnat and you swallow a camel. Woe to you, Kyle. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but on the inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind. First clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean too. Woe to you, Kyle. You are like whitewashed tomb. It looks beautiful on the outside, Mr. Hypocrite, right? Look, this is convicting. <laughs> it looks beautiful on the outside, but on the inside you're full of bones of the dead and of everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you look righteous to people, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a lot harder to put your name here, but let's not, let's not kid ourselves. If we, were, if we were in a lot of these previous generations, we'd have been killing prophets too. All right, let's just... <laughs> Let's just be honest, because uh, no one likes the rub. <laughs> it, it hurts. 
Woe to you, experts in the law, you Pharisees, hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorates the graves of, of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have participated with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. By saying this, you testify against yourselves that you're descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of your ancestors, you snakes, you offspring of vipers. As I showed you guys in the Talmud, back in, like, chapter 8 or 9, we see that they say mean things to each other in the Talmud, like that. Call each other sons of Satan, vipers. It's, they get nasty. This is still Jews talking to Jews. And, yes, he is really getting after them. Okay? But, make, like, I just want to make it so clear that to make Yeshua an anti-Semite, you literally have to make him that. Okay? How will you escape being condemned to hell? For this reason, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and experts in the law, some of whom you will... Oh, wait, hold on. He's sending experts in the Torah? Okay. I think most, I think most of our church brothers and sisters might have uh, skimmed that. Some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in the synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that on you will come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, this generation will be held responsible for all these things. Again, he puts it on the generation, not all Jews for all time. I know, preach to the choir, saying the same things over and over again, but I just have to make sure that I say it, okay? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. This is actually a quote from, uh, from Greek theater. Isn't that, isn't, that, <laughs> isn't that interesting? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children Together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. But you would have none of it. Look, your house is left desolate. That's pretty much what he said in the previous two chapters, whenever he condemned the the temple and or the people responsible for it. For I tell you, you will not see me from now until you say, "Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord." Whew. I'm telling you guys, if you ever need like a little um, you don't really know what to pray about, and 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 you're having trouble searching for things. Whenever it comes to repentance, um, just flip over to Matthew 23 and insert your name where necessary. And I promise that'll solve it for you. I promise. I'm being serious. Um, all right. So then chapter 24 is what's called the like little apocalypse or the synoptic apocalypse. And um, as much as I would really like to dive into that, um, a lot of these principles will actually go over in Revelation. Uh, a lot of this is situated within the historical context. He's prophesying the destruction of the temple. Some of it is much later because it doesn't have any historical bearing. It hasn't happened yet. So uh, we have things like the arrival of the Son of Man. And he says things like, you know, this generation won't pass away. I think that's actually Mark that says that. But the, uh, the verb tenses are similar here. And it can be confusing that, oh, the Son of Man is going to come. This generation is going to see it. Well, um, if you go to Daniel, the verb tense is the same. It's in the present tense. I saw one coming like the Son of Man. So it's the same. He's literally just drawing straight from the prophet. All right, so I'm actually going to jump ahead a bit, and I want to go ahead to get, get into chapter 26. Chapter 25, he tells a couple of parables, pronounces judgment, uh, but I want to get into chapter 26. Um, and I'm, I'm happy that we're, that we're here, and uh, Passover is still hopefully fresh in our mind, because uh, it's about to get down and dirty <laughs> here real quick. All right, so first thing that I want to do... So here in chapter 26, we see that they're, they're really starting to plot to kill him now. Um, and uh, they get with Judas and come up with the plan to betray him, right? That's at the beginning of the chapter. But uh, then they had the Last Supper, right, which is uh, infamous. 
But uh, I want to talk about a couple of things. And again, like Joe said, this is all a, this is a lens. And some of you probably won't know what I'm about, what I'm talking about here in just a minute, and that's okay. Um, just bear with me, and then at the end you'll be like, "Oh, I see." Okay. Um, but I want to talk about the the chronology of the Passion Week. Okay, because whenever we first get into Torah, we first start studying the festivals. Um, I think we get things a little bit. Um, we just we lose our priority a bit. And um, not only that, I think that, in my opinion, again, this is all lens, and this is just another option for a chronology, not that anybody needs one, but uh, I'm going to talk about why I think this option is really good, because it, tells the, it, it retells the biblical story. Okay, so the first thing I really want to tackle, and I tackled it several chapters back, is this issue of the sign of Jonah, right? Because that's the thing. Three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so soul the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And um, can I just go ahead and say and just call everybody out, including myself, who has done it? And so just consider this my public repentance. Um, whenever we go up to people and we say, like, Einstein couldn't get three days and three nights from Friday to Sunday, do you know how arrogant and just a jerk you sound, if I can just be frank? Right? They, don't, they just want to celebrate Easter, man. They just want to say he is risen. Come on. Like, can, can I just say that that's like really, that's not okay, okay? Doesn't matter if you're right, that's not okay, all right? So, uh, so some things about the sign of Jonah. First of all, the scriptures overwhelmingly in the New Testament use on the third day to talk about the resurrection. 13 times. It's a lot of times. Over and over again, on the third day. On the third day. Okay, now some, some people maybe, maybe need to give some context. So for, for a lot of folks, Friday to Saturday doesn't work, right? Because of three days and three nights, the sign of Jonah. Friday to Sunday. Friday to Sunday, right. Yeah, Friday to Sunday. Because that's not three days and three nights, right? Okay, so anyway, Scripture uses on the third day, overwhelmingly, 13 times. It uses after three days, four times, <laughs> So what is it? Is it on the third day? Is it, is it the fourth day? Um, and then, this, oh look, this is what really kind of like, this is what really gets me and what caused me to re-examine this. Because not only does this, uh, this really isn't about the passion chronology in my opinion. It's about just misunderstanding the sign of Jonah, in my opinion. The sign of Jonah is mentioned in each of the synoptics. Do you know how many times in all of the Synoptic Gospels, it says three days and three nights. One time. One time. Now, that doesn't mean that you disregard something just because it's not used a lot, or just because it's used one time. But maybe that's an indication that you should look at the data from you know, a, wider, a wider scope and try to figure out what's going on. Okay. So, first things first. Uh, in my opinion... This is, an idiom, this is an idiom. There's an idiomatic sense here of three days and three nights. And I'll tell you what I mean. So I'll use a real world example first. And then I'll give you some real evidence from the scriptures and from Jewish literature. So you can see how Jews reckon time. Okay? So if we're having a, a work day at OAM. I come up here. Let's say we get started after, after lunch sometime. Which I know we usually get started early so we get more work done. But just 
for the sake of my story and my illustration, just bear with me. So we start after lunch. We really get, we really get to work. But because we started after lunch, man, it gets dark, and we have to get all the halogen lights out, and we, have to, we work a little bit into the night after it gets dark. So then I go home, and, and my folks ask me, like, you know, oh, so what were you guys up to at the OAM building? Like, what all did you get done? And I could say, oh, like, uh, this morning and tonight, we worked on X, Y, and Z. So you see what I did there? I just reckoned a day and a night for like half a day. Like, even today, that, that sort of thing is very, like, that's very malleable, okay? So, a couple of, uh, a couple of things from the Talmud. Uh, I'm looking at the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. I'm not looking here for us to get doctrine per se. I'm just going here because this is good historical evidence for this type of thing from, from the Jewish people. And then we'll look at the scriptures. We'll go to the scriptures for scriptural evidence because I know for a lot of people that's the, that's the cold case. And it is for me too, to be honest. So, this is from the Jerusalem Talmud. Um, it has been taught by Rav Eliezer ben Azaria, who says, A day and a night constitute a span, an onah, that's a technical term. And part of a span is equivalent to the whole of it. Do you see there? So, a part of the, the, the day, the reckoning, the span, is equivalent to the whole of it. Okay? All right, this is from the Babylonian Talmud. Oh, and I should say, Neusner has this in Tractate Shabbat of the Jerusalem Talmud. He labels it as 9-3. His labeling system is a mess. So if you guys need like a real reference for that, I can get it. Okay, but this is from the Babylonian Talmud, Pesachim 4a. It says the halachot of mourning. So this is about mourning. But the point is, we can still, we're still going to see how they use chronology. The halachot of mourning apply for a single day. And learn from it that with regard to the halachot of mourning, the legal status of part of the day is like that of an entire day. Okay? So we see where half a day, a day, it can, it can be reckoned many different ways. But let's go to the scriptures now. And you can follow me or just read along. I'm reading from uh, the Septuagint, an English version of the Septuagint. It works just fine in the Masoretic text like we have in our English Bibles. But uh, this is in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Verse 11. 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 30, verse 11. Hang with me. I know that this is kind of boring, but I'm making a point. All right. 1 Samuel chapter 30, starting in verse 11. And they found an Egyptian man in a field. And they took him and brought him to David in the field. And they gave him bread, and he ate. And they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of fruitcake, and he ate. And it restored his spirit in him, because he had not eaten bread and had not drank water for three days and three nights. Okay, for how long? Three days and three nights, he had not done that. And David said to him, Whose are you, and where are you from? And the Egyptian slave said, I'm the slave of a man from the Amalekites, and my master left me because I was sick for three days, as of today. <laughs> so, so is it three days and three nights for the third day? Do you see? Okay, this is, this is, this is how Jews talk and write and reckon time. Okay, this is, this is normal. One more example. This is from the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse uh, 15. I'm going to do 15 through 17. And we know this because Purim wasn't that long ago. Then Esther sent to him who had come to, uh, had sent him who had come to her to Mordecai, saying, Go convene to the Judeans who are in Susa and fast for me, and do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. And I, indeed also my maid, shall fast, and then I shall go into the presence of the king, Contrary to the law, even if I die. 
And Mordecai went and did all Esther commanded him. Okay? But this is Esther chapter 5, verse 1. Then it happened on the third day. Okay? Do you guys see this? So we're talking about three days and three nights, twice. And then the next verse literally goes, and on the third day. Then it happened on the third day when she had ceased praying. She took off the garments of her service and put on her glorious clothes. And then she goes into the king, and uh, we know the rest of the story. So what am I getting at here? Whenever, whenever the Jewish people talk of a day, we see it in the scripture, we see it in their literature, and those are only a couple of cases. If you want some other scriptures that are a bit ambiguous in this same regard, Genesis 42, 17 and 18, 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 29, those are a couple of other places you can go. But like a, a part of a day can count as a day, or, you know, it's, it's just, it's a little bit, it's malleable, Okay. So even if you don't agree with me, and it has to be three days and three nights, that's fine. I get it. I really do get it. And I could see how like this wouldn't sell a lot of people. I understand. But my thing is, what, is this, what was the sign of Jonah about? right? And, and is that, was that the whole point of that whole passage whenever he said that? He actually gives another example. He talks about the Queen of Sheba, right? So first, what's, what's Jonah about? That's, the, that's where you start. Jonah's a book about a prophet. It's like the SNL of the prophets. It's Saturday Night Live. Okay, it's, it's, it's straight satire, okay? And it's straight political commentary and how that relates to God. So Jonah's this prophet called by God. God's like, go to Nineveh. Jonah's like, no way, I don't like Ninevites. So he gets in his ship and he goes as far across, he's headed as far away in the known world to Jonah as possible in his day. He goes to Tarshish. That's, he's trying to get like real far away. That's like as far as they know. Um, God says, nope, none of that. Causes a storm. You know what happens? They, they cast lots to figure it all out. Jonah's like, no, you know, just go ahead and throw me. I'll just cop to it. It's my fault. Goes into the ocean. The whale, the whale swallows him up, right? The whale's in three verses. I think maybe two or three. It's, it's, yeah, it's not, it's, or the big fish. It's not in a, it's not, that's not even the point of the book. Right? So what happens? The, the whale shoots Jonah out on shore, and he goes to Nineveh, and he, and he preaches. And he says, repent, or Hashem, God is going you know, to visit you with judgment. And they repent. They repent in sackcloth and ashes. And even it says, look, th- this is why I'm saying it's like Saturday Night Live. It says even their cows repented. Nineveh was so repentant that their, their livestock <laughs> repented. Okay? hyperbole there. A lot of hyperbole, okay? And everything is huge in the book of Jonah. Everything's, you know, it's just like, it's so grandiose. I love that book. It's actually one of my favorite books in the whole Tanakh. Um, But it's because of the message. What's the message? Jonah did not want God to have mercy on God's enemies. Let me say it a different way. Jonah did not want God to have mercy on the people Jonah perceived as God's enemies. Okay, this is the sign of Jonah. The son of man will be 
in the grave. He'll be resurrected. And what will happen? Many people that you don't perceive as God's allies will repent and come into the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And then he brings up the Queen of Sheba. So we have this Gentile inclusion thing also because Jonah preached to Gentiles. And, and they, she comes with gifts and comes and visits Solomon. And he says, one greater than Solomon's here. One greater than Jonah's here. The sign of Jonah is about repentance. The resurrection, remember because it's about participation, as I've argued, is about repentance. The people saw it and then participated in it through a life of repentance. Okay? So, how, how many of you, just as you, before you move, how many of you knew that the whale or the big fish was only mentioned two or three times in, in the story of Jonah? You think, like, it's in verse one and it's all, like, it's every other verse, right? Most people think it's in the whole book. Right. Because right. yeah. what do you think about when you think of Jonah? Whale or big fish, right? It's, see how we make things the focus that are not the focus? Isn't I blame, I blame VeggieTales. <laughs> VeggieTales. <laughs> I blame Sunday school felt boards. Yeah, you didn't right. know what those were. You're too young for that. Yeah. No, we have veggie tails. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So moving on, I don't know if I've made anyone uncomfortable. Hopefully not. Because again, this is just a, this is a this is a lens, and all that really matters is that you believe that he was crucified and resurrected. Whatever. And I think that's also part of my point. We want to be nasty to people about this, and they agree with us. <laughs> The king was crucified, and then God, through the mercy that he had on us, resurrected him from the grave as a promise that we can participate in that resurrected life. And we want to argue... Okay, you get the point. All right, I'll stop myself. Okay, all right. So let's talk about another initial problem. And, And I want to talk about this because this actually causes people grief. I know because it has caused me grief before. So there's a classic problem whenever it comes to the Last Supper. And between this and the sign of Jonah, people will reckon the, the Passion Week in some really um, out there ways. Okay? Um, so what, what is the problem? So it appears that in the Synoptic Gospels, the Synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it appears that um, Yeshua eats the Passover meal. Okay? On, so that's the 15th of Nisan, right? Because the, the lamb is slain on the 14th. The meal is at, on that evening, the beginning of the 15th, right? Is everybody following me? So then he, he died the day after the Paschal sacrifices, Paschal offerings. Okay. So on the 15th. On the 15th, mm-hmm. right? And then in John, it appears that he died at the same time as the Paschal offerings, mm-hmm. Right? Which is a real issue. That's a, that's a, I get it. That's a serious issue. Um, so I just want to read a bit, and let's see what the synoptic gospels say. And then we'll see what John says, and then we'll talk about some solutions therein, and why it even all matters. Right. Right? Because to me, the details um, are just important for kind of getting an idea, but ultimately, where I'm going with this, and, and what this says about the biblical story, and what God was up to in the world from creation is incredible, all right? So uh, this is, this is going to be Matthew 26, um, verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and said, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Again, I, I, I don't think it could get more clear, in my opinion, because I know a lot of people say, well, like, it wasn't really a Passover, but I'll get to that in a second. So where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? 
Okay, they're going to eat it. <laughs> they're going to eat the lamb. Okay. He said, go into the city. There's a certain man. Uh, so disciples did as Yeshua had instructed them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay. In my opinion, like, open and shut there for Matthew, right? All right, so now we're going to go to Mark 14. So this is Mark 14, verse 12. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, okay, Yeshua said, uh, Yeshua's disciples said to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples, and they went into the city, okay? Um, so verse 16, the disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, that seems rather clear as well. So now let's go to Luke, Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 7. Then the day for the Feast of Unleavened Bread came, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. It's getting even more clear. Yeshua sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us to eat. They said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? So he, he goes through the same deal. And here's the thing. In Luke 22, verse 14. Now when the hour came, Yeshua took his place at the table, his apostles joined him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Okay, again, in my, pretty open and shut, right? It is, he's eating the Passover. So then what's the problem? So there's a few, there's three verses in John. There's three verses in John that, that cause all the problems. And it's not John's fault. I'm going to show you why it's not. So there's one in John 13. Okay, John 13, 1. <clears throat> says it was just before the Passover festival. Yeshua knew that his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay, so John says they're going up, they're going up to Jerusalem, but it's just before the Passover. Right? Is everybody tracking? So the, the synoptics seem to be saying that they ate the Passover at the time after it was sacrificed, when it was supposed to be eaten, right? And so John seems to be saying that it was before that, right? So John eighteen twenty eight, if you don't mind. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus, Yeshua, from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Okay, so he's being tried already. He's going to be crucified, and... John 18 here is saying that they didn't want to go because they didn't want to become ritually unclean so that they could eat the Passover, right? All right, and then there's one more. John 19, verse 31. 1931. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Okay, so now we have it's the day of preparation, and the next day is like a great Sabbath, right? That's another one that kind of causes some trouble. And this is not a small problem, right? Um, and it's caused a lot of people with some grief, and it hinges on a few things, so I, I want to talk about that right now. Uh, so a lot of people tend to um, sort of just chuck the synoptics, at least it's been my experience. A lot of people tend to just chuck the synoptics, and um, they just read John's version, right? And so I want to talk about a couple of things, and then I'm going to show you how they're not at all saying different things. Okay, so if you're uncomfortable right now, don't worry. I'm going to show you how they're all, they have the same chronology. They're saying the same things. Even though, like, right now you're like, how can that be? I'll show you. But first I want to, like, debunk a couple of common things. So the first thing is people put a lot of weight into that great Sabbath thing, right? They say that, like, it's doubly solemn because, you know, um, it's, it's a feast day falling on a, falling on a Sabbath. 
Well, the problem is we know that in the first century, things weren't exactly that way. Um, and we have no early Jewish evidence that that's, how they, that's what they thought whenever a feast day fell on Sabbath. That's how we do it today. But we have no early evidence of that. So it's literally just conjecture. Also, that, that passage is really vague. So if that's the day when the Passover offering is supposed to be offered, why didn't he just say that? He called it preparation day instead. Right? Wouldn't you think that if that's the day that they're going to offer the offerings, it would be much more clear to say that today, the day that the offerings are made, right? But he doesn't do that. In my opinion, the most natural assumption is that the next day is the day of the sheaf offering. Okay? We also know, so it says it's like this great day, right? Well, in, in the, in, for the Pharisees, the day after Passover was the day that the sheaf was offered. Okay? So it was solemn. But we know from the Mishnah that there was pomp and circumstance, like a just big, like almost mini ceremony, mini like feast mm-hmm. around going and, and marking off the barley before you reaped it. And then whenever you go and reap it, it was like this big celebration, this big event. It was a solemn and special day for them. It was. Okay? But was not Passover. It wasn't, it wasn't the day they were sacrificed. Another thing people say is there's no mention of a Passover lamb in the, in the synoptics. It, you're right. It doesn't say lamb. But what else do you eat on Passover? With <laughs> you, a standing temple. You eat the lamb. You ha- yeah, that's what you do. Okay? So that, that's, just, that's just not true. The lamb is mentioned, even though it doesn't say lamb. They don't have to say that. Whenever Jews talk today about the Passover, they mean the offering. Right? Yeah. All right. Another thing people will say is there was like a lambless Passover meal in the first century. And you did like this quasi-Seder the day before. If you can find evidence of that, I'll pay you big bucks. That doesn't exist. Um, another thing people say is they did all sorts of unlawful activity, you know, on a feast day. Uh, you know, so because they're, they're purchasing things and uh, they're having to take Yeshua down from the cross and do, you know, all that stuff. that could be considered work, per se. Um, the problem is that in Exodus, Exodus 20, whenever the Shabbat is, uh, like laws of the Shabbat are first instituted, like no work at all is allowed on the Shabbat. Like none. That, like, that's ground zero. You don't work at all. That's what Shabbat is. However, if you go to Leviticus 23, same prohibition for the weekly Sabbath. You don't work at all. Okay? But then verses 6 and 7, whenever it comes to unleavened bread, those high Sabbaths, it just says don't do occupational work. Right? So they, they, everything that they were doing on that day was lawful. They could do it. And I, look, I have evidence. First of all, I should say that, like, if one thing we do know the most of from, from rabbinic writings is, like, what they constituted as work or not on Sabbaths and feast days. We have every argument imaginable. Okay? Joseph of, Ar- of Arimathea gets the, the shroud, Right? He gets the shroud, um, but this is in Mishnah Shabbat. They may wait nightfall at the Sabbath limit to see the business of the reception of the bride, talking about the, the Sabbath, or the burial of a corpse, to fetch its coffin and wrappings. So no, that's not about the Sabbath, sorry. That is about a literal bride. So this still is saying the limit of the Sabbath. You have to wait till the sa- sunset on the Sabbath, it's over. But the Sabbath is in view. You can go obtain what you need for the dead. Okay, one more though. So for the ointments here that the ladies get to, or to like, you know, Embalm his body. This is from Mishnah Shabbat 23.5. On the Sabbath, they may make ready all that is needful for the dead to anoint it and wash it, provided they do not move any member of it, right? So, 
Another problem we have, Simon coming from the field, Apa Agru, right? So some people say like, oh, look, Simon of Cyrene, the one who carried the cross with him, was working. He's coming up from the field. No, no work is implied. It just says he comes up from the field. That's all it says. Plus, this is nine in the morning. You're not leaving work at nine in the morning, okay? There's a few other things. Some people say there's improbabilities of trials on a feast day, um, except that if you go to the, to the Tom, actually to Sefta, uh, false prophets, which is part of the, the legal case by the, by the Jewish leaders against him, is that he was blaspheming. He's a false prophet. They can be put to death on a feast day. This is from the Tosefta Sanhedrin, a rebellious or incorrigible son, a defiant elder, one who leads people straight to worship idols, one who leads a town to apostasy, a false prophet, a perjured witness, so on and so forth. They bring them to the court in Jerusalem, keep them until the festival, and they put them to death on the festival, as it is said, and all people shall hear and fear and do no more presumptuously. And what better way for all the people to hear and fear right. than on a feast day when everybody's there? Right. right. So, so what's going on in not just in the first century, even still today. If you read a lot of Jewish writings or listen to enough uh, just Jewish friends or people talk, uh, the word Passover can mean four things. Okay? It can mean the actual lamb. Okay? The offering. It can mean the meal that you eat. It can mean the, um, the, the whole week of the festival. So the whole, the whole week of unleavened bread. So I'll put on leaven bread. So it can refer to the whole week. So all these can be referred to as Passover. And then the fourth one is all the peace offerings that are offered throughout the week. Okay, so all of this is Passover. So if I say Passover, the burden is yours to figure out which one I mean. (laughs) Okay, but if you live in a Jewish world, in a Jewish setting, you don't have to try real hard. It, it becomes really obvious. So, with this in mind, I want to just kind of look at some of that stuff in John again, and I'll go quick. All right, so John 13, 1, right? It says, before the feast of the Passover, right? So, this is talking about just before the Passover meal. So, this is before the meal. The Seder. The Seder, okay? John nineteen fourteen, right? Where, the, where they didn't want to go into the court to become defiled, Right, because they wanted to eat the Passover. And I can show you evidence. I won't take the time. I do have it. Um, but they literally referred to the Shlamim for Passover as Pesachim. They referred to it as Passover. So they could eat the Passover, meaning the lamb, or they could eat the Passover, meaning the peace offering. Okay? So whenever they're in the court, or they don't want to go into the court to be defiled, it says because they want to eat the Passover. John means the peace offerings that they're going to be offering. Okay, because the lamb's already been eaten. The last supper already happened. Okay, so John's chronology is the same as the synoptics. Okay, one more. The last one. The Friday of Passover week is what's meant by preparation day. Because remember, it can refer to the whole week. Okay, so when he says it was preparation day, it doesn't mean preparation day for the feast. It means preparation day of the week. Right? It was a Friday. Okay. Some people say like, oh, well, the, the Last Supper in, in John's gospel doesn't appear to be a, last, or doesn't appear to be a, uh, a Passover meal. Well, he dips a morsel. Some of your translations might say bread. That it doesn't say bread. It means like mouthful, as in like whenever you dip the, the, um, uh, the bitter herbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they recline, right? It, it, goes, it, it makes sure to let you know that they recline. 
Uh, there's a custom during this time in the first century to give to the poor on a festival. And in John's gospel, that's what they think Judas is going to do. Mm-hmm. Whenever, whenever Yeshua says, go and do what you're going to do, they assume he's going to give to the poor for the feast. <laughs> and then the last thing is, they're gonna make a la- they also assumed he was maybe making a last-minute purchase for the feast. Well, that makes no sense if the next day is open for business, if this is before Passover. Does that make sense? So literally, John's gospel chronology is the same as the synoptics. He just uses the term Passover in every way imaginable within a span of like three chapters. <laughs> What's the point? That's, that's the thing that I'm trying to get to. So John says it was on a Friday, right? It was a preparation day. And again, this is my opinion. I know I've, I've gone through great pains to try to prove it, um, but it's because I find it fascinating. And also, I feel like... Um, this has just been weaponized, and so I'm just trying to, like, give some background so people can see. You know, like, it's a lot more complicated, and it's a lot more, there's a lot more going on than what we assume whenever we go, like, Einstein couldn't get three days and three nights out of Friday and Sunday. Come on, man. Like, <laughs> come on. So if Yeshua is dead on a Friday, and he's in the grave for a Saturday, for a Shabbat, he's ceasing, if you will. What day did he get up? The eighth day. The first day of the week. Do you see, this is, this is the scripture's story from chapter 1 and 2. Okay? Now, this is really, really apparent in John's gospel. I haven't pulled from John's gospel as much as I wanted to throughout some of this. The things that John does with this are phenomenal. What are, what's literally the first verse of John's gospel, in the beginning. It's a new creation story. He does all these signs. He does all these wonders. It's the, it's the gospel of glory. This cra- I mean, crazy things happen in the gospel of John. But at the crucifixion, he's hanging. What are his last words in the gospel of John? It is finished or completed? Okay. Rewind. Genesis 1. And there was evening and there morning, the sixth day, and the heavens and the earth were completed, and the host of them. Okay? So Yeshua is hanging on the sixth day, saying, same word, by the way, that's used in the Septuagint. He says, it's finished, it's complete. Goes into the grave for Shabbat, he ceases, and then on the eighth day, he's risen again, and in the Gospel of John, what is he mistaken for? A gardener. Oh, so we have a new creation, a new Adam. And whenever you go back and you read the early church fathers, I'm not going to harp on this too much. The really early ones are not obsessed with the Lord's day. They're not. They're obsessed with the eighth day. You can hear them saying it over and over again. Why? Because they read a lot of Paul. And what's Paul obsessed with? This concept of a new creation and a new Adam. So I did all of that. I did all of that to show you that it's not about three days and three nights. Yes, the chronology matches Baruch Hashim. That's really good because it it solves a big problem. But I did all of that just to show you that I believe the gospel writers are trying to show you that God is retelling the story. Everything everything was leading up to this moment. Whenever, Whenever humanity decided to sin... Everything that God did to reach back forward to us culminated in that day. To be honest, I'll, I'll, I'll just say this. <clears throat> to consider Yeshua 
as being as militant as I once was about a certain calendar and a certain way of counting Passion Week, <clears throat> to, to, to consider Yeshua rising on Sunday hurts my feelings. It does. Because he's Lord of the Sabbath. And because blah, blah, blah. And all, would, I rather, would I rather stick to a, a, a reckoning that is Yeshua is the Passover lamb, which the Bible never says that. The Bible, Paul says that Yeshua, our Passover, Pascha, which could mean any one of those four things. <laughs> it could, doesn't have to just be lamb. Yeshua, our Pascha, what, do I just want him to be that? Or is it to be the new Adam, to begin new creation? I mean, it, it, it expounds the whole thing. And it can be yes and both. Right. The point is, is, um, is when, we, when, we, when we get so bogged down in one area and one thing, we're like, this is it, we might be missing a lot of beauty around it just to say. And so here's a, here's a great thing next, next Easter, what you can do, is you can, you can explain a Friday to Sunday crucifixion, burial, and resurrection with an eighth day. And go like, see, this just looks like Eden. You see, instead of it's pagan sun god worship. See, if you could explain it like this, how beautiful it would be. May may get some people's wheels turning, may get some people thinking like, wait, what? This is about Genesis? Genesis is about this? 